Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us. I hope you had a good weekend, if you had the weekend off or not. I hope you had a good one and that your Monday is going along okay. We are going to talk a little more coming up on the program about the new COVID-19 restrictions that are now in place for the Fraser Health Region and the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. We're expecting as well to hear from Premier John Horgan a little bit later on, actually in about 10 minutes from now. So we will bring that to you live when it happens. And the restaurant industry in this province. I know there were a lot of questions when those restrictions were announced on Saturday about restaurants and how they fit into the picture. Well, they have been commended for actually doing a really good job when it comes to putting in safety protocols and keeping people safe as they are able to return to restaurants. So we're going to talk about that after the 1230 news. So let's start, though, with a UBC med student who is taking a COVID-19 health challenge and trying to get it to specific members of communities. Sukmeet Singh Satchel is an MD candidate at UBC and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, talk a little bit about this approach and what exactly you're doing to get this message out. Yeah, for sure. So the project is called the COVID-19 Sick Gurdwara Initiative. And basically it started off when I received a grant from the Clinton Foundation as one of two Canadians from across the world uh, to receive this. And the idea was to create something in your community that can help mitigate the challenges around COVID-19. And before even Fraser Health had these increase in cases, I went to the Gurdwara and I saw that a few of the elders or most of the elders that were coming into the temple were not wearing masks. And that was concerning to me because, as we know from the data, that COVID-19 affects elders at a disproportionately higher rate. And this was a huge concern for me because elders are the people who mostly go to the temples as well. And so I got a team of over 100 youths together And for the past month and a half, we've been going to the temple every single weekend where we educate the public in a culturally sensitive manner about how to wear masks. We actually even provide masks for them with uh, specific ones that can fit around a turban. We educate them on how to wash their hands. So our volunteers are trained on teaching them how to wash their hands for 20 seconds with soap. And lastly, we are teaching about physical distancing. And that was actually the challenge that we had the most with, because a lot of the times elders like to aggregate together and they didn't really understand the concept of physical distancing. And so we had to try to come up with an innovative way to try to tackle this issue. And so a turban, or at least my turban, is six feet long. And so we created an infographic, a huge cardboard cutout, where there was an elderly sick man holding his turban out wide, and it was exactly six feet long. And so that visual representation was so easy for them to understand. And that's where I think uh, this project is going really well, is that we're trying to incorporate more of the cultural aspects to the messaging in order to make these public health protocols more effective. And did you get buy-in or or, or were people open to the idea or the messaging that you were taking to the Gudwaras on the weekends? That's a really good question because when we first started, there was barely anyone wearing a mask and no one was really listening to us. Uh, But just yesterday, we uh, were there again and we saw that most of the people that were entering are not wearing masks. And I heard from a few of the elders who were saying that even though they were wearing a mask in the community, when they came to the temple initially, uh, they were a little bit intimidated or they had peer pressure of a way because they saw that their friends were not wearing masks. 
But now because everyone is wearing masks and they see that these youth are actually giving this message out to them, they are now actually listening to this and we're all working together to help make sure the community is safer. It must feel good that you started this not knowing how people would respond, but seeing clearly a need for this. It must feel good that you've made this change. Thank you so much. I think it comes from my public health background. So before I was a medical student, I was a public health professional where I learned that in order to have proper and effective public health protocols in place, we need to have targeted messaging. And this messaging needs to be culturally sensitive to the communities that we're targeting. And so right now, my focus is on the South Asian population, specifically the Punjabi population, because I noticed that uh, they weren't really comprehending or understanding what was being said by the messaging predominantly in English. And so that's why we wanted to do something for the specific population. And being a Sikh myself, I know like my, my grandmother, for instance, she never spoke English, so she wouldn't be able to understand anything. And so I think it really comes from personal experience as well. And I'm really glad with the amount of support that we're getting right now as well. I think we're definitely wanting to expand to Alberta and Ontario as well. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, feedback from the new restrictions that were announced on Saturday and, and a fair amount of confusion and people asking for clarification. Uh, do you think, too, uh, with you and the volunteers, will you be able then to help people or walk people through what the new guidelines are and why they're important? Again, that's a really good question. Uh, absolutely. One of the things, for instance, that Dr. Teresa Tam was saying is, Masks now need to be at least three layers. And so we have adapted the masks that we're creating for the community uh, through people in the community who are making them for us. And we're making sure these are changed. And in terms of all the different public health protocols and all the announcements that have been said by Dr. Bonnie Henry, I'm actually going to be having an Instagram live with uh, Dr. Victoria Lee on Thursday, uh, who is in charge of Fraser Health Region. And we're again trying to do a targeted messaging towards youth and towards people living in the Fraser Health region so that they understand what all these different changes are. Because I know so many people are continuing to message me and they're really confused about everything. And so we're hoping that this Instagram Live can reach out to a wider audience and uh, people will be under, able to answer all the questions that they have. All right. Well, it's it's really interesting to see how uh, you've taken this on and how well it's working. And uh, hopefully you'll get continued success. Sukmeet, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. City of Victoria, there is a plan to move all people who are currently homeless inside and to put an end to 24-hour camping by March of 2021. It sounds like a rather ambitious plan. So how is the city hoping to do that? Well, the mayor of Victoria is on the line with us now. Mayor Lisa Helps is joining us. Thank you so much for taking some time. You're welcome, Jill. Good afternoon. Uh, It does sound like a very ambitious plan. So how is Victoria going to do this? Uh, Well, we're going to do it in the same way that we've been working throughout this pandemic, which is in strong partnership with BC Housing and Island Health. So uh, the city has a small role to play and we'll do our part. Um, The province has showed tremendous leadership and I know this new provincial government is uh, is also committed to continuing to make investments in in housing uh, and, and mental health supports. Uh, But how will you actually then, well, or to start off, how many people do you think or has the count been done as far as how many people are homeless in that part of the province? 
Well, in the city itself, there are about 250 to 275 structures right now in various parks. Uh, And so we know who's here. uh, And the currently that you stressed in your introduction is key. Um, We're going to focus on the people who are currently here. So if people, uh, you know, think of coming here from elsewhere, uh, we hope that they don't because we're going to be focusing on the people who are currently here uh, and then limiting sheltering to overnight uh, as needed, but not uh, not 247. So that's that's key. Uh, We've set a a very bold target of moving 200 people in by December the 31st. uh, And I can get into some of those details about how that's going to work if you're interested. Yeah, please. So uh, we have, again, working with BC Housing and Island Health, uh, they've come up with 100 rent supplements. So those are uh, supplements to the income assistance rate. Uh, And people who are currently living in supportive housing or in shelters who've been there for a number of years and who are ready to go and live in private market rental units will be moving uh, into the private market with those rent supplements. Uh, And then that frees up 100 spaces in supportive housing or, or shelters. And by shelters, I don't mean shelters where you go and stay for the night and leave. We've got a number of 24-7 shelters here. So that's 100 spaces. Uh, there are 60 new units that are opening in the region that rent at 375 a month. Uh, they'll be opening uh, in November and December. So again, people currently living in supportive housing don't need those supports anymore, can move into those units. Again, creating space for people uh, in supportive housing who are living in parks. Um, we've got another 22 spaces available at the Therapeutic Recovery Community, uh, which is a place for men who are ready to uh, address their addictions and they go and live there for for 18 months to 24 months so that's uh, another 22 spaces and then as soon as we have a government that can make an announcement again or make announcements again there are about 30 more spaces that will be available so that is just over 200 and we're going to start there. Uh, you you mentioned this as well, and, and I think one of the key things is you can't just put somebody in an apartment or put somebody in housing. And if they ne- have medical needs, mental health needs, anything like that, it's not going to work. So are you confident that there will be those supports for the people who need them? Yes. Uh, Island Health has been working alongside of us. Everybody who moves into an Island Health rent supplement unit has the level of care that they need. Uh, people who are living in supportive housing uh, will have the level of care that they need. People who are moving from supportive housing or shelters shelters into the private market, like you know a regular rental unit, they they are being assessed as no longer needing a high level of supports. They've been in housing for years. They've stabilized, and they'll just be like you know regular people living in apartment buildings with maybe the occasional check-in. So absolutely, Island Health support has been pivotal to making sure that we're not just warehousing people in housing because that doesn't work. We've seen that. Uh, So if you get to that place where everybody who is currently in in one of the 250 to 275 structures is housed, how do you stop, though, even if there's enforcement that doesn't allow 24-hour-a-day camping, how do you stop people then from coming and setting up camps in Victoria? Well, the bylaws will be in place that if people need to shelter outside, and the bylaw is phrased in such a way that if there are not indoor shelter spaces available, uh, it is okay to tent. If there are indoor shelter spaces available, it is not okay to tent. Uh, But, you know, if people do need to tent outside, uh, they can take down their tents uh, at 7 a.m. and put them back uh, up at 7 p.m. And that's that's the Supreme Court decision that makes that uh, the case. So that has nothing to do with our bylaws. Right. But but who's going to be enforcing it? And if there are still tents up in parks after 7 a.m., who's going to be enforcing that? 
that's that's the job of our bylaw officers. That's what they're doing right now. There are many places in the city where sheltering is not permitted. Uh, and if tents go up overnight, the bylaw officers are there first thing in the morning uh, asking, saying you can't shelter here because it's like this isn't even a place where you're allowed to put up a tent. Uh, and, and the tents come down at 7 a.m. So we, we our, our bylaw of allowing sheltering uh, from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. has been in place as a result of the Supreme Court decision since 2008, uh, and it's it's been enforced since 2008. So there's no magic in that. Uh, the challenge right now is we're in the middle of a global health pandemic. There are people who are living outside who literally have nowhere to go, and that's what we're going to be addressing with BC Housing and Island Health over the next five months. Uh, have you talked to any other mayors or people in other jurisdictions? Do you think this is something, can Victoria do this on its own, or do you need other places? to be doing this as well? Well, I am the co-chair of the BC Urban Mayors Caucus, uh, which is made up of 12 other mayors from around urban British Columbia. Uh, 55% of BC's population is represented by us, and each of those mayors, uh, and we're in contact on a regular basis, have similar challenges, and each are taking a different approach to managing it. So I would say that every mayor uh, in this province that I've spoken with has similar objectives. Uh, The magnitude of the problem is different in different places. And and you're confident then with this timeline uh, again by was it March of 20, 2021? March 31st. Yeah, March 31st, 2021. That's right. And, and you're confident that that's a, a realistic timeline and this can be done by then? I'm I'm not confident, uh, but we have to start uh, with the process. We have to set a goal. Uh, we have to indicate to the people who are sheltering outside that they're not going to be out there forever. We have to indicate to the people who don't feel like they can use some of our parks that they will be able to use the parks again in summer of 2021. Uh, no one should be sheltering outside, and we're going to do our part uh, with Island Health and BC Housing to make that a reality here in Victoria. Uh, so confident, um, no, hopeful, yes, 200 people by December 31st, which will be a, a big kind of chunk of, uh, chunk isn't the right word, but a big uh, uh, portion of the population moved inside. Those 200 spaces um, exist. It's going to take a lot of work with the private sector landlords to find those 100 units. But so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. And what we've demonstrated here uh, with BC Housing and Island Health and all the service providers and outreach workers is when we pull together as a community, we can do it. And that's the goal. All right. Mayor Helps, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. Have a good afternoon. Well, you may have heard the news earlier today. Pfizer is finding some pretty positive results in testing a vaccine. It doesn't mean that there will be a vaccine in the next few days or weeks, but they have found what they are testing seems to have a pretty good result rate. Well, there is a company, a local company, with a bit of a connection to this. And Dr. Thomas Madden is the CEO and president of the nanotechnology firm Acuitas Therapeutics and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Pleasure to join I, I know that uh, we've talked to you on the station in the past and people are familiar uh, with the company, but for those who aren't, what exactly uh, does your firm do? Uh, well, the uh, vaccine being developed by um, Pfizer-BioNTech uses a new technology where they're providing a, a message that tells our cells to make a particular pass of the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus, and we then generate an immune response against that part. Um, 
however, the, the message is, is very um, uh, delicate and it needs to be protected. And we provide a, a delivery technology that protects the, the messenger RNA uh, after it's administered and also takes it into the cells in the body so that it can be um, uh, translated into the COVID-19 protein. So that seems like a pretty important role. It's, it's critical. It, it, it enables the vaccine to work. Uh, so were you surprised at all when we found out or the announcement from Pfizer earlier today that uh, they're suggesting that about 90, they're, they're saying it could be 90% effective at preventing COVID-19? Well, we were, uh, we've been waiting for the uh, initial results from this trial to come out for some weeks now, and we were delighted uh, when we saw the press release. Um, uh, it's an uh, interim analysis um, they've, uh, there's, there's been a number of uh, cases uh, in the uh, population that was treated either with a vaccine or with a placebo that then triggered this analysis. And as you say, they're saying that it could be uh, 90% effective in preventing infection. Um, but they also want to continue the analysis until they have uh, more confirmed cases to uh, finalize that, that protective ability. Uh, we're also uh, we understand that this particular vaccine needs to be kept very very cold, and if it's not, it it loses the effectiveness. It doesn't work. Is that something that that you had to take into account when uh, researching and when working on this kind of delivery method? Uh, maybe I could just sort of make a correction there because one of the challenges in developing a vaccine this this quickly is that you don't have the time that you would normally be able to to dedicate to looking at at stability. And so, as I like to say, you can't run a two-year stability study in in six months. And so, um, while we're uh, generating data to support potentially uh, different um, storage conditions for the vaccine, then we have to be very cautious. And and the most conservative approach is to keep it uh, frozen at minus 80 um, until it's administered. And this, this does provide some logistical um, challenges, um, but certainly the plans are in place um, to ensure that we're able to to transport it wherever it's needed and and keep it uh, protected until it's administered to patients. All right. And when we talk about the, the that key role that you're playing as far as delivering that messenger RNA into the cells, is that, and this might be an overly simplified question, but is that specific to this particular vaccine or is that something that you do that, that's part of your research and that we see with other vaccines as well? Um, so th- this is a delivery technology that applies to a, a wide range of potential um, therapeutics or, or drugs. Um, it's being used uh, for a number of vaccines, uh, including COVID-19, um, but it's not specific just for COVID-19. And the same delivery technology uh, could be used to deliver, deliver other very new types of, of drugs in the future. Uh, how is your team feeling today uh, about this? Uh, they are uh, extremely excited and, and extremely proud um, that uh, that they and a, and a Canadian company uh, could contribute to this um, enormously important uh, global um, result. And certainly so many people are watching to see what happens. We're very encouraged by the Pfizer announcement this morning. So what does that mean then for you and your team as far as what do you where does your work go now that, that this has been this this is the result that's been put out there? What is it? What does that mean as far as what's next for you? Well, I mean, 
think it's important to realize that, you know, we've been working to support the development of this vaccine now um, since uh, since uh, March of, of this year. Um, and a large part of that effort has been um, to uh, support um, scale up so that we can manufacture um, sufficient quantities of the vaccine to be able to make it available to a large number of, of, of people. Um, uh, that, that work is, is still ongoing. Uh, there's obviously still the, the studies ongoing to look at stability and, and to ensure the, the quality of the vaccine. Um, but this is, everybody's been hoping and waiting that the clinical data will be positive. And so um, this will be an extremely encouraging uh, result for them. And can you talk a little bit about how things have changed? And when we talk about vaccine development, and you kind of touched on this so when you said because time is obviously of the essence in in Pfizer or anybody else that's developing a vaccine, you couldn't you couldn't do the normal two year study or perhaps do the 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 ta- take the time. We don't have the the convenience of time. How has that changed how vaccines are developed? And and in the case of your company, uh, using that kind of delivery method and, and coming up with different ways of vaccines to work? Well, I think what's really interesting is, is that the, the technology being used for this particular vaccine um, sh- uh, should always allow um, more rapid vaccine development. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting that the first phase three data uh, has been released using this new messenger RNA um, technology. Um, uh, and I think um, we will now be better positioned uh, to be able to respond more quickly should there be a subsequent um, viral threat. Um, We now have in place uh, uh, the the manufacturing capability. I think we have in place the the, the capacity to quickly design vaccines for any new virus. And so um, this is potentially um, just the first example of a messenger RNA vaccine that could be uh, quickly developed and safely developed uh, to to address an emerging pandemic threat. And I think you may have touched on this as well, but when we think of vaccines, I think we often, we, we look at them as the end goal, which is to stop the virus, but the vaccine itself uh, and the, the what, what you do as far as the delivery method, uh, how fragile of, of things are we talking about? Um, so the, 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 the messenger RNA is, 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 is fragile once it's in our body um, within the vial itself it's it's perfectly fine but uh, our body um, uh, doesn't like um, foreign DNA as we refer to it uh, and it would normally break it down quite quickly and that's why it needs to be protected after it's administered so the fragility is not while it's in the vial it's after it's administered to, to people. And I would imagine you sometimes would get questions or how do you answer questions when people are concerned or raise concerns about the safety of vaccines? Um, I, I think this is a really important uh, discussion, and, and um, I, I think it's, it's going to be important that um, you know governments and, and other organisations um, provide more information, historical uh, background information on how uh, vaccines have uh, improved our overall health over over many years. And and COVID a COVID nineteen vaccine is simply the the the, the most recent uh, example uh, of. Uh, how vaccines have really contributed to, to, to human health. And at Acuitas, for example, we're, we're putting out a blog that 
provides people with links to uh, important information sites where they can go uh, to learn more about vaccines uh, and uh, and the good they do. And 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 also, um, uh, I, I think that they have a, a very well earned reputation uh, for overall uh, safety as well as as being very uh, effective. Does it give us any better idea having these results, do you think, come out and show such promise? Does it give us any better idea as far as the timeline on when we might actually see a vaccine that will be given to the public? Um, I, I, I think that this is obviously a, a key step. We, we, we need to, first of all, show the vaccine is effective. And then the full data set, the full information package has to be provided to regulatory agencies for, for their review. Um, but 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 we I think we've we, we've now hit that that first goal. We've, we've seen uh, the first evidence of effectiveness. And uh, you can imagine that um, uh, Pfizer and BioNTech are currently manufacturing vaccine um, in the expectation or in the hope that it will be approved um, for distribution to the public. And so there will be supplies available once approval is given, but it will certainly take many, many months before sufficient can be uh, manufactured uh, to meet uh, everyone's needs. I mean, there are billions of, of people uh, that, that would need a vaccination. And so it will take some time before supplies are available to, to everyone. All right, but certainly some uh, encouraging news today. Uh, Dr. Madden, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. You're welcome. Thank you.